0: What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the show. Today, we have a Q&A. Not gonna waste any more of your time. Took some questions off Instagram. Thank you to everybody who asked, and let's jump into it. First question's from Paige Wright, and she asks about planning, somebody planning their own mesocycle, right? What are the fundamentals of planning a mesocycle? You know, she's unsure of where to start with reps and sets versus where she should end with reps and sets towards the end of the mesocycle, or should you not worry about that stuff at all and just focus on progressing each week? And so I'll give a little bit of a breakdown of this, like, kind of, fundamentals of planning a mesocycle, and hopefully this is helpful. Now, I think she knows, she kind of put like a laughing emoji in here because she knows that like, um, you know, it's kind of my opinion, I suppose, that the average person probably doesn't need to be worrying about this stuff. There's a lot of really cheap professional programming out there. I'm not just plugging my own program here. I'm just saying it's not necessarily something that the average person, like I do this for a living and I don't even want to program for myself. So the average person doing it for themselves is kind of to me like, I don't know why you would want to do that, but, but, but. That's cool. Not up to me. If you want to do it, I'll hopefully give you some direction here, which is awesome. Um, I would start with deciding how many days you can realistically spend in the gym and how long those sessions can be, because for most people, this discussion of what is optimal is not is not practical. Haha. <laughs> um, because you know you probably don't have six days to train. You probably can't do the occasional double session. Now, I'm not saying those things would be optimal. What I'm saying is that it's probably likely your first limitation is going to be time. And so let's decide how many days you can slash would like to spend in the gym and how long those sessions can be. And in my experience, the average person is looking at something like four times 60 ish minutes. Um, And so we have four, we have four days a week. We have 60 ish minutes per session. Those are two pretty like limiting, not in a negative way, but like those are our first things that we want to decide. Then from there, you can pick a split that reflects what you want to work. All right. So you're working four days, you're working out four days a week and, let's, let's assume you kind of want to grow everything. Okay. I want, I want to grow my upper body. I want to grow lower body. I want to grow glutes and quads and and buys and tries and delts. And that's awesome. And so we're going to probably go with something like an upper lower split, but that's not necessarily, um, you know, uh, the only way to go about doing this. If you cared a little bit more. So my, my advice is like not to necessarily try and get too specific with it because that's where a lot of nuance can come in. And if you're an average person trying to program for yourself, I wouldn't, try and program some form of a specialization phase. I would start with very balanced programming. And if you want to kind of, as you learn more, start to adjust things to meet your goals a little bit better then that would be my advice. Um, and so now you've picked a split, maybe it's upper lower, maybe it's a, you know, some, some, some variation of that. Um, and now we need to start picking some exercises. I think an average of four to six exercises per day with an average of six to 12 reps. Now I wouldn't program a six to twelve rep range, but I would program a rep range within that six to twelve, six to eight, eight to ten, ten to twelve on average. Sometimes a smidge lower, sometimes a smidge higher. Um, and that would be a really good place to start. When we're talking about picking exercises, uh if, if your goal is hypertrophy, then we definitely want to do a little bit more work in the length of position than we do in the short position. But we definitely don't want to neglect the short position. We do want to work both the length and position. We want to work the entire range of the muscle. That's where we're going to get the most hypertrophy. Um, but of that, we want to bias a little bit more of our volume towards exercises that work the muscle in the length and position. And let's choose glutes as an example. That would mean that we don't just do things like glute bridges and hip thrusts and hip extensions and kickbacks. We would do also things, because the, P.S. because those exercises really bias or more so bias the short position. We would pick exercises like glute-emphasis squats and glute-emphasis squ- split squats and RDLs and, and glute-emphasis leg presses, stuff that challenges the muscle in a more lengthened position. That's gonna be probably head-to-head better for hypertrophy. So now we have the amount of days we can spend in the gym, how much time we can spend in the gym. We have our split. We know we're gonna do four to six exercises per day. We're gonna do, on average, about six to 12 reps. And we're gonna pick, uh, you know, both lengthened mid and short position exercises, but maybe with a slight bias towards that lengthened position. Um, and then as far as progression, listen, Let's keep it simple. Start with, on average, uh, a higher RIR. So start on average further from failure. And from there, just focus on progression. So in your first week, just start with an average of, let's say, two RIR, right? And that might be something like a 3 two, one RIR scheme where, you know, first set is a three RIR, then a two, then a one, and you're averaging a two RIR. And from there, just focus on doing a little bit more each week. I'm not saying don't ever think about RIR again, but I think a lot of people would be smart to just try and nail their first week with hard but not too hard training and then just push themselves to do a little bit more each week. And when we talk about this like a little bit more each week, we're talking about adding a little bit of load or a rep here or there to one of your sets. We're not talking about making crazy jumps, we're talking about micro-progressions. We're talking about each week doing a little bit more without going completely all out. Um, now, sometimes it might require going completely all out in order to do a little bit more, but that's fine. You kind of let that happen instead of pursuing that uh, as an end and up itself. Um, Personally, for the average person, I would not recommend using set jumps. I would not use adding sets as a form of progression just because I think it can get a little bit out of hand. There's a little bit more nuance. Adding a whole set can jump volume or the amount of tension kind of exponentially a little bit. Uh, And it's not, it's something that if I was the average person, I would just focus on starting with a slightly further from failure week one and adding some load or reps, trying to match or beat previous efforts in pursuit of, you know, progression each week over time. And that's probably going to last about four to eight weeks until you can't do that, um, which you could either pre-plan or you could auto-regulate. You could just decide that I'm going to stop once my progression stalls, or you can pick a predisposed time. I think the predisposed time probably head to head is better long-term, but you can do what you want. um, And then you'll deload. And then from there, it's a different conversation. So hopefully that was helpful, uh, Paige, and uh, I'm sure we'll talk about it soon. Next two questions, three questions. Forgot to get names for people. Um, What are your thoughts on follow-along workouts on YouTube? How different can the results be, especially if these workouts are timed per movement versus pushing to failure at a gym? So basically like, hey, we're going to do one minute of curls or something like that. Um, You know, how different can the results be for hypertrophy? Very different. If you're doing workouts for timed, right? If everything is like, oh, we are do one minute of squats and then one minute of curls and one minute of lateral raises or whatever. Um, and that might even be a best case scenario because those it might be you know worse exercises, let's say, for hypertrophy's sake. Um, but the answer is very different over the long term. Now, it's gonna be more different the more advanced you are. Um, the difference for, let's say, me, if I'm doing these workouts versus me doing what might be more optimal for hypertrophy is gonna be massive, Um I might, I might lose muscle, depending on what these workouts look like. Um, for When I say that, my point is not to worry about that context. I'd rather you worry about this context. If you're new to lifting, which I suspect you might be if this is the, the route that you're going, but I don't know that to be sure. I'm not, I'm not positive. I'm just kind of shot in the dark there. Um, these will give you great results because anything will. And if this is the thing you like doing and this is the thing that feels palatable to you right now, that, that kind of meets you where you're at, that feels fun, that, that allows you to be consistent, you're going to see great results. The more results you get, remember guys, the more of a stimuli, the more of an adaptation that your body gets, the, the more stimulus is going, to, it is going to take to push that adaptation further. So when, when, you're, when a stimulus is very novel, when it, you're very new to something like lifting, you don't need a lot to see great results. But the more, quote, results you get, the more of that thing, or in this case, the better or more specific stimuli you'll need to keep pushing that adaptation. So in the long term, the results will be very different. In the short term, if you're new to resistance training, I honestly think that this would be great. It'd be fine. Is it, again, no matter what, is it ever going to be as good as optimal hypertrophy training? Of course not. But if you're new to lifting and this is fun and you're like, hey, this is something I like doing and, and I get up and I'm excited about it and I can be consistent with it. Dude, you're gonna see amazing results. That's awesome. Um, a little bit, I guess, on the timed per movement thing. The timed per movement thing is just—it's um, a bit. It's obviously a bit arbitrary. Like, what we really want to be doing for hypertrophy is taking the target muscle close to failure, and then resting long enough in most cases to do that again. Not necessarily just like working for a period of time. And so, like we talked about again, if in the in the beginning that that sort of nuance might not um, inhibit you from. Um, making gains, it, and actually, it won't. You'll still make gains totally, but yeah, over the long term, you'll want to do things a little bit more optimally. Next question: In a bulk now, going to start a cut at the end of March. So you're in a bulk now. You're going to cut at the end of the March. Uh, at the end of the March, um, do I drop twenty percent off my bulk calories or twenty percent off my maintenance calories? Thanks. Uh, okay. For starters, just to be annoying, 20% is just like a pretty arbitrary number. Like, people throw around 20% as if it's a magical deficit number. It's not. It is a fine place to start, and I don't want to discourage you from using it. And if you've thought about this and you've decided, you know, with a little bit of nuance that 20% is the right number for you, that, that's fantastic. That's awesome. Um, just I don't want anybody listening to think 20% is like some like necessary prescription that that's what you're supposed to do. That's not true. Uh, This is a random number, but okay. It's still a fine number and it'll work fine potentially. Um, The answer is you definitely will drop those calories off of your maintenance. Now it is your new expected maintenance is how I would phrase it because if you've been bulking, you've been gaining and the last time you calculated maintenance calories was probably before your bulk started. And so you want to make sure that you recalculate what your new maintenance is now after the whatever weight that you've gained, and then drop twenty percent off of that if twenty percent is the number that you want to use. If you dropped, let's say you're, let's say you're bulking at twenty five hundred calories right now, and your maintenance is two thousand calories, uh, and you drop twenty percent off of your bulk calories, that would put you at two thousand calories, and that would just be maintenance. And so you really definitely want to be kind of. Using maintenance as that jumping off point, but it's going to be your new maintenance. It's your, and not just your new maintenance, it's your new expected maintenance, meaning that it's your new estimated maintenance. And we can't possibly be 100% sure about where that is. You know, you can, I would recommend using some combination of like doing the math based on what you've gained. And so let's say you've been gaining a pound a week, potentially, right? If you've been gaining a pound a week for the last month, then you're probably in something like a, one, a 500 calorie surplus. If you've been gaining half a pound a week on average for the past couple months, then you're probably in something like, you know, a two to 300 calorie surplus. And so using some of that math can be helpful, but also using a calculator to kind of recalibrate that new maintenance uh, is a good place to start. Remember, it's still going to be a guess. Cool. Next question is, how many working sets per muscle group for hypertrophy? I have a post on this um, and the answer is this is an extremely tough question to answer because All sets are not created equal. And so I'll give you a general recommendation at the end here, but like how many working sets per muscle group for hypertrophy? This is a really tough question. Not all sets and not all sources of tension are created equal. Are we counting lengthened position exercises and short position exercises the same? Are you counting an RDL the same as a glute kickback? Are you counting sets to failure and sets at a 3 RIR the same? Right, Because how many working sets you would need for hypertrophy of an RDL is going to be way less than the amount of working sets. Like It's going to take you way more sets of a kickback to recreate the amount of tension in a certain number of set of RDLs. And the same goes for, you know, it's going to take you way fewer sets, or let's say the opposite again. So it'll take you way more sets at two RAR or three RAR, not way more, that's not fair, but it will take you technically more sets of two RAR to recreate the amount of tension in a failure set. And that is not me telling you that you should do all your sets to failure. You should not. And that is a conversation for another day. My point is there are going to be people who are going to train slightly lower volume and slightly uh, higher or higher intensity. So closer to failure. uh, And they're going to see great results. And maybe some people will training with slightly higher volume and slightly further from failure. And they can also see great results. Now we can have a discussion of which one of those might be right for you, but The truth is like we can't, like not all sets are created equal. Like are we counting like residual tension or like ancillary tension, like secondary movement? So let's say you're doing pull-ups. Are we counting that as a set of biceps? What about a dumbbell dumbbell press or or a bench press or something? Are we counting that for triceps? And so there's all these questions of like, if you show me a program, you know, a lot of people don't count pull-ups for biceps at all. Your biceps absolutely work a ton do they work enough that we should count that as a set? I don't know. That's a, that is a very nuanced question. you know, if we were, if you put a, put a gun to my head and ask me how I would go about counting that, I would count those as half, let's say. And I would put that towards my number, but I honestly have been doing this for a long time. And this isn't necessarily, it's something that I would get so specific about, frankly, um, And so again, this is a tough question to answer because not all sets are created equal. We have length and position and short position work that are very different per unit of, you know, how much damage they create, how much hypertrophy they give. And so we can't, are we counting those as equal? Um, What about level of intensity? So sets that are to failure, are they counting the same as sets at three RIR? Uh, You know, what about like, you know, really compound, really compound lifts, you know, really, what about, you know, we talk about something called a stimulus to fatigue ratios. So certain exercises, you know, might give you a really good stimulus, but might make you really, really fatigued. And so imagine you're doing deadlifts in your program and you're counting deadlifts for glutes or whatever. Um, we'll talk about deadlifts later, but um, you know, are you counting a set of deadlifts the same as a set of your like single leg hip thrusts, you know? And so we really get into this, this issue of like, it's tough to quantify this stuff. So like all that being said, I think somewhere in like a six to 20 range can work depending on, you know, are you counting these partials from compound lifts? Are you counting those partial, you know, the pull-ups? Are you counting that for biceps? Uh, Which exercises are you doing? On average, how close to failure are you doing? Uh, Are you going, right? I know that that's not super helpful, but I, I think it, I think it can be helpful for people to start with an average of about 10 with a nice split of lengthened and short position work. And if you're at about 10 and you're certainly doing a good amount of length and work and some short position work, you're gonna see gains. Uh, as long as you're close to failure and, and eating enough, and sleeping enough and doing all of the other stuff. My point is your sets per muscle group for hypertrophy won't be the limiting factor. And and you can modulate from there. I think if you're close to about that 10 number with a decent exercise selection and obviously enough protein and calories and sleep and, and getting close to failure, you're gonna be good to go and you can start to modulate from there. There's It is gonna be so many variables Not least of which is also your genetics and also your preference and also what your lifestyle and recoverability and nutrition status are like. There's so many things that can change this kind of um, recommendation here. And so if you're in that 10 ish range, you can modulate up or down from there, I think. Cool. Cam Marrow asks How important is mind muscle connection? Should I lift heavier because I can or focus on feel? (laughs) you should definitely lift heavier because you can. Let's start with that. Um, this is not like a, well, you know, I shouldn't go up and instead I should just focus on the feels, you know, but well, let's add a little bit more context to that. Like how important is it that you feel exactly what's working while you're doing it? I would say it's, that's the wrong question. The more important thing to understand is it's more important that your setup and execution is on point. And so, if a client says to me, "Hey, Jordan, I'm not really feeling this," and this will happen invariably in the group, and I'm sure some of my people in the group are listening, but like, if you ask me, "Hey, I'm not feeling this in in this part of my body. What am I doing wrong, or what can I do better?" I need to see your form video first. You know, I care primarily that we get you set up in a position to execute the movement where the muscles that we want to work have to work, right? If you are telling me, hey, I'm not really feeling this Bulgarian split squat in my glutes, and then I check your form, and you have a really nice, mostly vertical shin and a forward lean, and you're not posterior tilting, and all the setup and the execution points to the fact that in order to do what you are doing, the glutes have to work, right? I'm going to be really happy, and I'm probably going to tell you, hey, just keep going with this. Like, this is not a, a competition of of feeling it the most, I'd rather you your body, listen, your muscles do things, right? Your glutes, let's say, extend the hips, like you, you, you know, your bicep flexes the arm, and so if you get your body in a position to let the muscles do what they do, that is the first and more important thing. It's not the only thing, and the feel isn't irrelevant, um, but I care way more about the people listening to this getting themselves into a position, like anatomically, that makes sense so that the muscles can do what they do. Promise you, ninety nine percent of you guys are gonna see better results if you focus more on that and less on internally what's going on. And no offense, but like most people listening to this aren't neurologically like in tune with what's going on enough. Like this isn't what you do for a living. Maybe you haven't been lifting for a decade, and to really focus on like trying to feel it, like trying to feel it is almost a skill. And I'd rather you not worry so much about that, especially if you're relatively new to lifting. I'd rather you focus on hey, what sort of execution of this movement makes sense so that my quads will work. Um, You know, if you're doing split squats and you're like, I'm not feeling it in my quads, I'm not going to be like, well, you should really be thinking about it more. I'm going to be like, no, let's focus on elevating your heel, getting more knee flexion, pushing that, that the knee out over the toe. And over time, listen, this is what the quads do. That is how we lengthen the quad. There's just no two ways about it. That just like, will not end up working your triceps. Right. And so I care way more that you are set up correctly and executing in a way that the muscles we want to work have to work. And the feels is very secondary. Now, it's still over the long term, it still can be an important, important, a strong word. It's still relevant. It is still relevant. I'm not throwing it out the window. Um, there is some amount of, hey, once my form is in check, should I over time have a better mind muscle connection? Yeah, probably. But I also think this like mind muscle connection is a, is a, not necessarily misunderstood but coach Cassim from N1 would would say and I'll give him some I'll give him the credit here cuz this is what he would say he said that he would say that mind muscle connection is should be less about you like feeling feeling the muscle like squeezing and more about your ability to control that muscle's contraction and really, not isolate, but when it's time to work the glutes, you know how to contract the glutes. And when it comes time to, you know, extend the hips in a glute bridge, you know how to initiate that movement with the glutes. It's less about feeling it and more about being able to control that muscle. And one of the things I th- I suspect he means by that is is also if you're so focused on feeling the muscle working, like if you're so focused on getting like a crazy pump in that muscle and feeling that muscle work a ton, you're going to end up with way more short position work. Exercises that work a muscle in the short position are going to give you way more of this like, this like really intense mind muscle connection, like how we typically think about it. If you do an exercise, like everybody's going to feel a glute bridge or a hip extension at the top in their glutes more than at the bottom of a Bulgarian split squat, let's say, right? But the downside of kind of letting that feel dictate the exercise selection is that the Bulgarian split squat's gonna give you way more hypertrophy, and so if you only, like if we talk about, this happens to me a lot with bicep training, Um, if you guys, if we pick an exercise that that works the bicep in a more lengthened position or overloads in a little bit more lengthened position, let's say, so maybe something like a facing away bicep curl on a cable, um, and even that isn't a great example because it probably overloads the mid-range, but if we take that versus like a 90-degree like a preacher curl, I'm always, that preacher curl, I'll tell you right now, 90-degree preacher is my favorite bicep exercise, period, end of story, and it is my favorite because I feel my bicep working like crazy. Now, I know that that is because it is very biased toward the short position. Now, I say favorite. I know it's not best for hypertrophy. I'm just saying I feel it a ton. And that is a poor guide for exercise selection because I know that, I, you know, you'll grow more from something like an incline curl or a facing away cable curl, excuse me, or something where the biceps work in a more lengthened position. But here I am like, you know, oh, I'm only going to do this 90-degree preacher because I feel the bicep working like crazy. It's like, no, that, that can't be your guide. So hopefully that was helpful. Uh, what do we have? 20 minutes. All right. Fit, fit wine lover. Is there a minimum of protein grams needed per meal to stimulate muscle protein synthesis? Is 20 grams good? For those of you guys who need a little bit of a breakdown here, when you guys eat protein, uh, that protein gets broken down into constituent amino acids and it stimulates what's called muscle protein synthesis which just means the creation of new muscle proteins, right? Synthesis meaning creation of something new, muscle protein, right? So the building of new proteins. Is there a minimum amount of protein needed per meal to maximally stimulate that process? Is 20 grams good? Now, it, it, it can't be just a number of grams. Some of the research, I'm not saying the research is lazy, but like you, if you Googled this, which, I, which was funny because um, I wanted to see what Google would say, and I, honestly, when I read this question, I was like, why didn't you just Google this? Not in a mean way, but I just thought like you could just Google this. And then I Googled it and I was like, oh yeah, this isn't helpful. And so personally, I don't think using just a random gram number is very helpful. Now Google will probably give you like some sort of a 20 to 25 gram mark, but that can't be right. Because if you, I know you, you're super shredded and you're lean and, and and a much smaller individual than me, and I probably have closer to like 100 pounds on you. So how could that 20 grams for you and 20 grams for me be the same? It's not. Um, I think it's better to, you know, listen, and, and we'll, we'll come full circle on this like 20 to 25 gram recommendation in a second, but I think it's more important to look at this as a gram like per body weight. And so what we see in the research is mostly something like a 0.4 grams per kilogram of body weight Um, and for me at 195 pounds, that's going to be about 35 grams of of protein. And that's actually usually 0.4 grams is usually in the research says you could probably go as low as 0.3 grams per kilogram. If you have something that's a really, really, uh, a high scoring, high quality protein. So like a whey protein, I believe when they test whey protein, that number comes actually down to like 0.3 grams per kilogram body weight. But when we're talking about like a mixed meal or even just like slightly less, I mean, whey is the highest scoring protein in this regard, let's say. Um, it gets closer to that 0. 0.4 grams per kilogram mark. And so yes, does is there a minimum protein? I'd say I'd say 0. 0.4 grams per kilogram is a really good place to start in terms of like, hey, I should shoot for this f- at least three times per day, let's say. Um, I guess I'm getting ahead of myself here, but I would shoot for 0. 0.4 grams per kilogram as a minimum. Um, you know, as often as you can. That's not fair either. Um, okay. So let's ha- let's ask a better question. It's like, how do we optimize our protein intake? Let's take that a little bit of a step back. And number one is we want to have enough total protein per day. So even if this question is asking a much more nuanced question of like, okay, within my optimal protein intake per day, is there, are there, is there a minimum I need per meal? You know, is is having, let's say you have hundred grams of protein, is ten meals of ten grams of protein the same as you know, three meals of 33 grams of protein. It, it isn't. The 33 grams of protein will perform better, um, yield more muscle growth, let's say. How much more? I don't know. Probably over the long term, it, a decent, it'll be pretty meaningful. Um, and so my advice to people with protein is, listen, get, get your total daily amount in check, which we could say is about 0.8 grams per pound body weight or more. Um, we could, you could even potentially go a little bit less like 0.73 or, or more, but whatever I like to round up to 0.8. Um, and once you're doing that, if you split that number up over at least three meals or at three meals or more, right? At least three meals, you're going to be good to go. Cause what's going to happen is let's say you're 150 pounds and you're doing, you know, 0.8 grams per pound. We can just do roughly some math. That's 120 grams of protein. So you have 120 grams of protein and you're eating that over three, you know, three meals, let's say, right? So you're having 40 grams of protein per per meal um, and your 0. 0.4 gram per kilogram number is probably at like 30 grams-ish of protein, then there you go, you're already surpassing that. And so if most people just focus on eating enough total daily protein and doing that over at least three meals, they're gonna be good to go. Now this, what if you eat more protein and you have more meals of at least 0. 0.4 grams per kilogram? Are you gonna get more gains? there's a huge diminishing return. If you're telling me two people are eating the same amount of total protein, one person's doing it in three meals, one person's doing it in four meals or five meals, but all of those meals are still over this 0.4 grams per kilogram mark. Are they getting more gains? I don't know, maybe, but probably an indistinguishable amount, an amount that we can't even recognize in the research really. Um, so once you're having enough total protein split over at least three meals, I think you check every box that's available to you, um, and remember, this is not a light switch where we turn that light. Like, MPS is not a light switch that goes on and off. It's certainly a dimmer. And so it's not like eating 20 grams of protein when you're, you know, I just told you you need to be eating 27, for example. It's not like 20 grams all of a sudden didn't build muscle. Of course it did. Of course it did. This thing is a dimmer. This is a light dimmer. It is not an on and off switch. Um, and so, yes, optimal... Muscle protein uh, uh, synthesis stimulation probably around this 0.3 to 0.5, I'll say, depending on the quality of the protein, grams per kilogram body weight. Um, But if you have a little bit less sometimes, it's not like it doesn't do any good. And the total daily number still matters by far the most. No matter how much research we do on this topic, total daily protein still reigns supreme. Now, it might just be a proxy for a lot of the other things, but I agree. I actually think it is a proxy. Like if you have, nobody is eating 0.8 grams per pound in one meal. And so if you get somebody to eat 0.8 grams per pound, chances are they're doing it in at least two to three meals. Um, Cool. One thing I would say is this number, this like amount of protein needed to maximally stimulate MPS goes up with age. And so in the research, they use, I think, a 65-year-old cutoff where we start to see what's called a little bit of anabolic resistance, meaning we need more protein to get this same muscle protein synthetic response. Um, we become resistant to the anabolic effects of protein. And so that number actually goes up to more like 0.5 to 0.6 grams per kg. And the take home for that is like, you know, I think about when I get older, I think about my grandparents, I think about my parents, like I would rather them be having fewer meals with larger protein servings Um, on average, right? I don't want, it's not like, oh, we're going to one meal a day, but I'm thinking, okay, I'd probably want them to get larger boluses of protein, um, per feeding than grazing, let's say. Cool, enough on that. Moving on. Bends and Blooms asks, body recomp is easier with my upper body. Do you have recommendations for lower body, hips, and thighs? Well, we can't decide where we lose fat. So my recommendation, no matter what you said here, would just be to lose more fat everywhere and make sure you're training your lower body with some form of hypertrophy or resistance training Um, just because I think building muscle is going to affect the aesthetic of this, this body part regardless. Um, so we can't decide where we lose fat. You just have no, it's not up to you at all. Um, and so if you want to get leaner in a certain place, that is synonymous with wanting to get leaner everywhere or the same pursuits, regardless of where you want to get leaner. Um, and also listen, almost everybody's going to be nodding along here where they say I store more fat, you know, women, maybe it's hips and thighs. Men get a little bit more like a belly area. Um, that's a large generalization. Everybody's different, but it's mostly going to be let's say hips, thighs, belly more than it's going to be limbs. And so you know uh, you're not alone here. Every, almost everybody's going to store more fat where you're talking about, and less in their upper body limbs. Let's say. Um, th- Listen, it's the same shit as always. You need a calorie deficit. You probably want to resistance train those body parts if you care about the aesthetic of those body parts. Uh, body parts, um, and that's it you know, and, and just go with the knowledge that this is t- a totally normal or a very common fat distribution, genetic fat distribution. Um, there's a reason that we store a little bit more fat in our hips, thighs, and belly, and less in our limbs. Um, mostly from a, like a evolutionary protective mechanism for our organs, stuff like that. Um, and yeah, so same shit as always, you need a calorie deficit and you can't really choose where you lose fat. Montana 53, how prevalent are steroids in the fitness industry? I, or on, or on Instagram. I got to tell you, I have no freaking clue. Um, I have no clue. I'm very steroid illiterate. Uh, I just, you know, sometimes I have some suspicions, but like it's not something I ever really think about because who cares? Like I'm sure if, if, I'm sure if we pull up a, a thousand accounts and you ask me which of them are, are on juice, I, maybe I, I, I have no idea. I have no good answer for you at all. My guess is more, depending on what we consider a steroid because I'm sure there there's a hierarchy there, but... Um, but probably more prevalent than you think. Um, I don't know, I am not. I don't get caught up in this like natty or not, like are these people natural or not? Like I just don't give a shit. Um, what I would say to you, th- th- I'm trying to think of like what matters with this question. I have no fucking clue. I never think about if people are on steroids. Like it's not like I'm scrolling, I'm like that person's more jacked than me. They're on steroids. Like I just don't care. Um, I would be more focused on, I think this is one of the moments where you just have to realize, like, it's, you can't base what you do off of how somebody looks. I'm not saying because they might be on steroids. I'm just saying we need to start to really pay attention to, like, what works because it makes sense, not what works because this person says so and they're jacked. There's somebody who comes to mind to me, they're not on steroids, but they're super jacked, and they don't do any real style of hypertrophy training. They do, like, some training that I know is not optimal for hypertrophy, um, But they're super genetically gifted and they have done a ton of volume and, you know, overlapping with hypertrophy training for a long period of their life. So they're super jacked. Um, And then if you watch some of their page, you're like, well, this is what I got to do to get this way. It's like, no, that's not true. Um, I guess I went a little bit off base here of this question. The answer is I have no clue. Probably more prevalent than you think. Um, But I think the main take home here is to just not let how people look affect the decisions you make about what you do for you. Um, at, in the same vein, I can respect if how, you know, if I can, I can understand if the average person cares, you know, if you were choosing between somebody, I don't know, I don't know, this is a tricky slippery slope here, you know, if we're talking about um, picking a program, one person's in shape, the other person's not in shape, and the goal of the program is to be in shape, I understand the psychology of wanting the, you know, the person who you purchase something from to have what you, you know, what to have what they are selling, let's say. Um, but that's, it's honestly, at the end of the day, that's technically not relevant. You can have somebody who's not in shape with a really great programming and somebody who's in shape with a really shit programming. And so it might be a clue and maybe a part of the whole overall puzzle, but it's certainly not a, the most meaningful one. I think we need to be choosing more things based on what makes sense. The problem is, of course, that the average person doesn't really know, right? They're not going to be able to kind of parse through the nuance of what might be better for them and and you know it's easy to get caught up in the way somebody looks and the way somebody speaks and you know kind of you know their their use of 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 uh persuasive language and stuff like that so bit off topic there but the answer is probably more than you think but i honestly have no freaking clue it's never something that i think about kaylee b franklin says belly fat i know you can't spot reduce or target fat loss just deficit and patience or dot, dot, dot. Yes, just deficit and patience. And resistance training, actually, we're talking about belly fat here, so not necessarily super relevant. Um, I don't know. This Two things come to mind, Kaylee. First is you You said it. You can't spot reduce, just deficit and patience. That's literally the only thing you can do is get leaner the same way you always thought about getting leaner, which is a calorie deficit. And belly fat, I don't know. if, Kaylee, I'm guessing you're a female and... So right off the bat, you're probably going to store a little bit more body fat in that region on average, and if you've a ch- if you've had a child, maybe you maybe even more, and or maybe there's some overlapping um, uh, loose skin there, um, and I just I don't know, man. Just is everyone meant to have a super flat stomach? I don't know if this is. I hate saying that because people oh you have a flat stomach. It's not you can't say that. It's like I don't know, man. I'm just thinking like a little bit of belly fat, like a little bit of fat around like, it's just, it's not as normal as you think to be shredded and have a six pack. That's not It's not only not normal, it's just not necessarily something that everybody's gonna be really really happy once they accomplish because what it would cost, Kaylee, for you to remove all your belly fat, to get that lean, might mean sacrificing so much of your life that it fucking sucks. Um, I don't know where you're at. I don't know what you look like. I don't know what your body fat percentage is like. I don't know anything about you. What I do know is that most people shouldn't, most people won't be happiest with the kind of life they need to live with a six pack to get a six pack, to get and maintain a six pack to get and maintain a shredded midsection. Like I just think that the, I'm not, I don't I have no idea about you. I don't know anything about you. I just immediately, maybe this is just me. Like it's triggering to my brain of like just having had this conversation so many times. It's like you don't actually want a six pack Like most regular people who have a nice social life and have a good life, most people don't want a six pack because having a six pack means not having a whole bunch of other stuff that you really, really like. And I'm not saying you're asking for a six pack. I don't know what you're asking for. You're know, you just asking to target a little belly fat, which obviously we can't do. But just think about the trade-offs and think about what your life might look like with a six pack. You know, I often say that the people you want to look like live a life you would fucking hate. Now, that's not always the case, and obviously there's a spectrum there, but um, I think of my life sometimes. Um, most people wouldn't love my life. Most people would not want to trade with me. Most people might be like, wow, I want to look the way he looks. Yeah, you don't want to do the things that I want to do. You don't want to live the life that I want to live. Now, I'm not, I'm not putting that on a pedestal at all, actually. Um, I think that just the way my life is led, it's a lot easier to be leaner right? I go out a lot less. I do not drink. Like uh, my fitness has been my life. I live with a partner who's, uh, you know, very fitness oriented as well. And so it's just, um, you know, we don't eat out a lot. We're not partying a ton. Like uh, that's an understatement. Um, yeah. So again, another rant, uh, that maybe he didn't ask for JK. Oh, we got two or three more. Let's get through these here. Uh, JK asked, why should you ditch the bar pad when squatting? Well, you are correct. You should ditch the bar pad when squatting. Um, th- the answer is, it's just not helping you at all. I'll start with saying the fact that like, if you're out there and you're like, I need to use the bar pad because I'm scared of putting the bar on my back. It's more dangerous to use a bar pad than not use a bar pad. That's number one. It has a, it. the bar pad, because of how thick the pad is, displaces the bar from where it should be and puts it higher on your neck where it shouldn't be, right? That's number one. Number two is, it has the high, a higher propensity or higher percent chance to roll or to move. And so there's a lack of stability component here because it's on this like spongy pad. It has It is less like locked in to your body. There's less tension created between your back and the bar. And that also is less safe because it can roll up on your neck or roll down. Or the fact that it can move at all during squatting is not something that you want. Third, if you are nervous about not using a pad. You're like, it's gonna hurt, or I'm gonna be sore, or I don't know what. I think maybe you might be nervous that it's gonna hurt your neck. But the irony is you're gonna hurt your neck more with the pad. Um, You might be sore the first time because maybe your traps have never directly held up a bar before, let's say, for example. Um, But I've I've had this situation a million times, especially when I was working in a gym with people one-on-one where they would really wanna use the pad. And like two or three sessions into not using the pad... All soreness and discomfort went away. Stability went up. Safety went up. Strength went up. And I don't mean strength went up because they magically got stronger. I mean strength went up because the bar is more secure to your body and you were able to not kind of worry about that bar bouncing around on your back. Um, and it all of a sudden, it's mostly in your head is what I'm trying to say. The, whatever fear you have is mostly in your head and actually might just be worse with the pad. Um, you're nervous about being sorry, You're nervous about it hurting you. All of those things are going to be worse with the pad if you just get used to putting the bar in the right place and really locking it down, whether you're doing a high bar squat with the bar up on your upper traps or a low bar squat in between the upper and lower traps or upper and mid traps um, and rear delts, whatever, uh, you're gonna be way more secure without the pad. It's gonna be way safer. Blama Fitness, best practices for a hypertrophies member, so somebody in my group, uh, doing three mesos in a deficit. First of all, you can absolutely do my program in a deficit. Um, it is not so crazy damaging that you won't be able to recover from it in a deficit. Frankly, I think that that will work fine. My advice would be to just manage your expectations. Like, not not. it's not that you shouldn't be making progress or doing the progressions. You absolutely should. You should be training hard. You should be aiming for progressions. And you should probably be making some, for sure. But just manage your expectations. This is not the time to be, like, living and dying emotionally on making PRs. Like, When you're in a deficit, guys, just in general, your goal is to lose body fat and to maintain muscle. If you, like, sometimes in the pursuit of trying to maximize muscle gain in a deficit, you train in a way that causes you more stress than you can recover from and ends up making your deficit harder. And so what I would want everybody out there who's training in a deficit to do is to train hard, totally try and make some progress, but don't let your emotions ride and die on your workout PRs, right? This is not the time to like focus or at least put so much emotional stock in PRing. This is a time for you to train hard enough to maintain muscle, but not so hard that you incur so much stress from your training that when you combine it with the stress from your calorie deficit, you end up having to end your deficit early because you're, you know, whatever diet fatigue goes so high. Um, And that doesn't mean, again, doesn't mean don't try. Doesn't mean only do metabolic training or whatever you would hear. Um, What it does mean is just don't make muscle building and PRing the number one thing that you hang your emotions on right now. You need to train hard, hard enough to maintain muscle, eat enough protein, but you need to kill your deficit more than anything. Like hitting your calories. If I have a client who's like, yeah, my workouts have been decent. But I've nailed my my deficit for the last 12 weeks. Versus someone who's like, again, this is a false dichotomy here. It's not these two options only. But somebody who's like, wow, I've been crushing my workouts, but I'm feeling dead all the time, and I'm not sure I can keep doing this deficit. Like, I'm not saying those are the only two options. What I am saying is at at least consider if you've been someone who's like, I'm murdering these workouts, but I'm not recovering well, and I feel like crap. It's like, I don't want that for you in a, in a cut. I want you to be recovering fine, fine enough that the the, the training stress isn't making you feel like such shit that you want to end your deficit. Cool. Last question is from Loklim. 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 Anyway, Loklim1014 asks, I feel so unstable doing split squats, dot, dot, dot. This is not a question. Um, but you're asking me what you should do. Uh, the answer is... There three things maybe that come to mind. The first one would be make sure that you're not uh, like walking the tightrope. And what I mean by that is like make sure your front leg and your back leg are not on the same line. Um, a lot of times when people get into a split stance, they end up having their legs too close together. Like if you looked at yourself from the top down from like a bird's eye view, your legs should not be in the same line. They should be, quote, coming out of your hips. And what that means is more of like pretending like you were walking on train tracks where your right leg would be on the right side and your left leg would be on the left side. Now, if you put a split stance where one is forward, one is back, that doesn't mean they should get closer together. It means they should stay exactly where they were laterally um, and just go one foot forward, one foot back. That's number one. You'll feel way more stable doing that. Number two, stable slash balance is a neurological adaptation. And so if you're new to these, then that stability component will get better. It will improve 100% totally. Um it will improve. This is a new movement for you. It's like telling me that you feel awkward hitting a golf ball for the first time. Of course you do. It's new. You you will feel less awkward over time. Now, what is the final form where you feel not awkward at all? Who knows. But you will feel less awkward over time. It will improve. It will move in that direction. So, um, potentially, looking at option number one, but also putting some faith in option two, where it's like, hey, this will just get better over time. Um, And uh, thought number three that is now escaping me is, oh yeah, Um, you know, as much as it's a neurological adaptation, it will get better. You also, it's like not necessarily, you shouldn't necessarily be placing so much pride on your, like I think a lot of people have like this idea of like balance being, they, they put a lot of pride in their ability to be, like, let me rephrase, it's, they feel embarrassed when balance is not good. I feel like people are like embarrassed, they feel like a klutz. They feel clumsy um, or not athletic or whatever. Uh, And I don't know if I really care. Personally, let let me just give you a different perspective. I'm not saying this is how you should feel, but I don't really care about any of that stuff. Like, Like, I'm not saying you shouldn't have some level of balance. You should, but if you're doing split squats and you're finding out that it's the balance component that continues and continues and continues to be the limiting factor, and it becomes not a good movement, that's good for you for strength, then I would just fucking hold on to something. And so instead of holding uh, two dumbbells, one in each hand, I would hold one dumbbell in the front side leg, and with my non-working side arm, or the back leg side arm, I would hold on to something. You're gonna get way better output, way better stability. It's gonna be way better for strength and hypertrophy. And the the problem is like, this is a scenario where people are like, well I just, I don't wanna be not balanced. It's like, you know, you probably have enough balance to go through your day-to-day life and live without falling on your freaking face every two seconds. like. You know, whether you can do this split squat optimally without holding on or not probably isn't the difference between you going through your life like a klutz or not. And so at some point you need to weigh this option of like, well, am I doing these split squats that aren't really productive because I keep falling over? Um, And should I keep pushing myself to do them un, you know, uh, let's say unassisted uh, because I really want this balance component or should I maybe just freaking hold on to something very gently? And then all of a sudden this exercise becomes a zillion times better for hypertrophy and strength. And that's a trade that I'm happy making. So those are the thoughts that would run through my mind. That's the end of the Q&A. Thanks for listening, guys. I'll see you in the next one. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical. If you liked the episode, it would mean the world to me if you posted a screenshot to your social media or left a five-star review on iTunes. That stuff really helps. If you ever want to get in touch with me, just shoot me a DM on Instagram, at jordanlipsfitness. I'm always around to chat. Thanks, guys. Have a good one.